Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. This past week in our house, Diana has made a conscious effort to really get back meditating on a regular basis, and Headspace has really helped her do that. And she has reported to me, and it's clear to see, that it has really helped with her focus all day. And so Headspace continues to be a big part of our lives here at the Cander household. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy-to-use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. It's backed by 25 published studies, 600,000 five-star reviews and over 60 million downloads. You deserve to feel happier. Headspace is it's meditation made simple. You just go to headspace.com slash m54. That's headspace.com slash m54 for a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. And by the way, like I've been using Headspace a long time and I've noticed that that library is just constantly expanding. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash m54 today. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who did not to join our majority. Ravi, welcome back to the United States. What's going on this week? Some big news. Biden is just now in the implementation phase. On Thursday, he gave a primetime address to the nation. It was his first of his presidency in which he announced that the administration is going to direct states and localities to make every person eligible for the vaccine by May 1st. All adult Americans will be eligible to get a vaccine no later than May 1. That's much earlier than expected. And to do this, we're going to go from a million shots a day that I promised in December to maintaining, beating our current pace of 2 million shots a day. Which is huge news, puts us on pace to be ahead of many, many countries around the world. Um, puts us, I think, uh, I think above average, which is something that it, I would new. never thought I would be able to say. Uh, mm -hmm. American exceptionalism, we're above average. Um, <laughs> so we are, uh, we're on pace right now. And Monday, he also said that the U.S. is on track to meet two goals in the next 10 days. Uh, 100 million vaccine doses administered and 100 million stimulus checks sent. Sounds like a, a soundbite to me. Uh, he said shots in the arms and money in the pockets. That's what's important. Jason, is that important? Uh, yeah. I mean... You know, before we all actually started recording, you and I and Grace, our producer, were talking about how the vibe uh, everywhere we go seems to be that no matter how careful and how committed people are to being safe during this pandemic, even the best of us are just so close to over this thing. And and that's fair. It's been a year. I mean, it's been a year of doing this. And I I just think that if this were to drag on much longer without this sense of progress and this sense that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, 
I, I I do think people would rightfully be pretty upset at at the new administration. Yeah, you know, one thing I've been wondering is in kind of revisiting some old conversations that we've had on this podcast, one nightmare scenario that we were worried about was the politics of the categories, right? Who gets the vaccine first, second, third? I think we could say at this point that it looks unlikely that that debate has become uh, a driving force uh, in American politics. And I'm not quite sure why. I guess it's partially because the right has become so skeptical of the vaccine in the, in the first place that like, essentially, if you're in a risk category and you really want the vaccine in a lot of places in America, you're going to get it. And in even like, as I said earlier in this pod, if you're healthy, like you're at least going to be able to schedule your appointment come May. Uh, so it seems like there's a little bit less angst uh, in that debate than I was predicting. Well, so to refresh people's memories who didn't hear the episodes a few months ago, what we were worried about is that that there would be, you know, a, an argument by the right that, oh, they're making sure that black folks get the vaccine and they're making sure that, uh, you know, uh, Latino folks get the vaccine. But the, but us white people like we're not you know, that's what we were worried about was them making that up and, and making that argument is two reasons why I think that hasn't happened as much. The first is in states like mine, there's been a lot of criticism because a lot of vaccine has gone to like rural white parts of the state and there's been a huge surplus. And so as a result, it's been the reverse. For instance, the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, uh, Tony Messenger from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch the other day was one of the many people in St. Louis who put on Twitter like a map of how far they had to go to the to get the vaccine. He drove two and a half hours to Sedalia, Missouri to get the vaccine because there was just way more vaccine in smaller towns than there were in urban centers. So the first is because of that, I think they've had less room to make that argument. And then the second is I think they've shifted that argument to a different part of relief, which is they, they've really leaned into the idea that, oh, a lot of the economic relief is going to black small business owners and it's going to, you know, these minority group small businesses or or whatever, and it's not going, you know, to white folks. Like that's so I think we were unfortunately right in that prediction, but we were wrong about where they would put it. And and I think you're you're right that they don't feel like the most salient argument for them is about the vaccine because fewer of their voters are are more of their voters are skeptical of it, but all of them want small business support, right? So that's where they've kind of put that misinformation, I think. Right. Yeah. And it's worth spending a little bit of time about where the GOP is on this. At this point, they're not putting their back into a critique of the Democrats on COVID at all. Like, yes, they've been criticizing the relief. Yes, they'll, they'll try to uh, bring identity politics into the vaccine debate, but it seems like they really aren't into that. What it seems like they want to do is move the terrain surprise to cultural issues that have nothing to do with COVID, like the border. Uh, Leader McCarthy went to the border, I think, a couple of days ago to try to uh, kick up a debate there. If you turn on Fox News, that is, think that that is the biggest thing happening in our country right now. Obviously, we've talked about the Muppets and Dr. Seuss and this never-ending stream of grievance politics coming from the right, they seem to think that that is the most effective use of their time in their airwaves. What should we make of that? I mean, it makes sense to me, right? Like, if you get blown out, like if you if you suffer like an enormous one-sided defeat, uh, then like you're not going to spend a lot of time on that. Like, like I can tell you that we are not relitigating the Super Bowl in Kansas City. 
right? Like, like we're not spending a lot of time talking about that Super Bowl. We're like, that happened. Let's move on. That was terrible. And what are we talking about? Like in sports, we're talking about free agency and who they're going to get in next season. So that's what they're doing. They're like, better luck next year. Let's start the next season because this is a wildly popular across party lines piece of legislation. I mean, it's like 60 some percent of Republicans, 70 some percent of independents, something like that support the American Rescue Plan. So if you're the GOP, you look at that and you go, okay, we're probably not going to bring that down, at least not until we get to a point where people don't remember exactly what happened. And then we can make up some stuff about how that caused some other problem. But for now, let's just pretend that didn't happen. And let's move on to ground where we could possibly win. So I guess it's on us to make sure that people don't forget that that's a thing that was done on a totally party line vote and that the Republicans didn't want it. I, I just have more questions than I have answers right now about what the Republicans are doing and just what the situation is, right? So, like, my first question is, what, what if anything, has changed at the border over the past two to three months that had led to them completely—it's not like they were criticizing Donald Trump like this. So what's, what's going on at the border that's, that's materially different, if anything? The second is they're making sweeping claims like, you know, like, basically saying, like, members of al-Qaeda are coming across the border. And, like, you know, these are going to be things that we're going to explore in the podcast probably over the course of the next few months and years. But, you know, every time you look into it, no surprise, they're completely bullshitting. Like, essentially, like, if there's a citizen of Yemen or something who tries to make it across the border, they try to spin that into um, saying it's a terrorist, where it's somebody uh, from a Middle Eastern country, right? Like, this is just the kind of politics that they're playing. And, you know, what's, what's, what's really unforgivable at this point in our politics is that it's very clear to me that we have a party that, that isn't looking at problems as solutions. They're looking at them as opportunities. And it's freaking exhausting just keeping up with the amount of misinformation that they're spewing right now. Well, the, the pattern is pretty easy to understand, right? As long as they're out of power. When the economy is good, the Republicans talk about cultural issues. And when the economy is bad and they're out of power... Well, then they talk about the economy, right? So when you look at 2012, when Obama was running for re-election, we hadn't fully recovered yet from the Great Recession. And so they tried really hard to make the argument that, you know, because of the economy that we should we should switch and we should go away from Obama. But the economy was recovering just enough that that didn't really work. And then in 2016, when it was like, are we going to keep the Democrats in power or are we going to put a Republican in the White House? By then, Obama had done a really good job and people really got the sense that the economy was really starting to come back because it was. So what did they do? Like, you know, Trump went out and he talked about the border and he talked about all that kind of thing. And so now the economy is not good yet, but there's a real sense now that things are going in the right direction. So what do you do? You're not going to talk about the economy. You're going to go right back to the you know greatest hits and, and act like you know Osama bin Laden has been uh, you know pulled out of the ocean and is coming across the border. Right. Well, well, according to Trump, he's still alive. So that would be <laughs> that's right. <laughs> he's he's indestructible. But uh, <laughs> I was having this fantasy the other day of a Senate candidates this coming election being pushed on this issue and then almost in a Sorkian moment being like weak on terrorism. Is that the debate that we want to have right now? Like you have, you're a party that's been an apologist for the terrorists that are within our borders. And as you, you know, eloquently put, I think a week or two ago, that is the real terrorist threat in this country. I I'm really excited to see candidates turn that debate into a referendum on the patriotism of the Republican party, because I think it's a losing issue for them. Yeah, I mean, we just need to recognize that right now the wind is at our backs. We're right about stuff. They're wrong about stuff. And so we shouldn't... I can't think of an issue about which Democratic candidates or Democratic voters or Democratic people talking to their friends should be apologetic. It just... I can't think of one. So speaking of the idea of 
you know, Democrats being apologetic or complacent, uh, we got a great voicemail about that this week. So let's give it a listen. Hey, Jason and Ravi, this is Johanna, and I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. And the question I want to ask you guys is I have some friends, I consider myself to be pretty progressive, but I have friends who are, you know, light years past me in terms of the progressive scale, which is great. Um, however, they have been incredibly critical of everything in the first 50 days of the Biden administration, including the COVID relief package. And while I understand it's not everything we need, you know, it didn't include the $15 minimum wage, um, I, I feel like they're not seeing any of the good in it, like the premiums uh, that are going to be covered if you're on COBRA and the, um, the checks that will help families and lift you know, millions of children out of poverty. So how do I talk to my friends who only see the negatives and only see the things that haven't gotten done yet and are already calling for this administration to be done and that they're worthless? How do I talk to them and convince them that or show them that we are making strides and we are doing good things that are actually going to really help people? Thanks so much. You guys are awesome. Bye. So I don't know a lot about your friend. So like the first thing I would do is, is ask them some questions about how this bill did or did not affect them. If it did affect them, that's great because then you could talk about all the amazing things. Like, are they going to be able to take advantage of the tax credit? Are they going to be able to uh, access uh, the Affordable Care Act in a way that they haven't? Did they get a stimulus check? So if it's affected them, that's great. And I would use that as a line of discussion with your friend. If it doesn't affect them, that's also an opportunity because I think you can focus on things like the child tax credit and say, look, that might not be a big deal to you, but a 20, 30, 40, 60% increase in your take-home pay plus a stimulus check, these are things that make a huge difference in the lives of other people. So if you're if you're not eligible for that, then, then you're in a great position and congratulations. Uh, but there are other people who just objectively, like in sharing the numbers, their lives have been changed by this bill. And, you know, people who live pay, paycheck to paycheck, the quote unquote, like what we call working people, right, which is like such a weird term we use in politics. But I try to think of those people as the people who live paycheck to paycheck and worry about how to pay their bills. Those people have been objectively helped for the better by this bill. And that's where I would focus my time. Yeah, there's, there's two things I would do. One, I would make sure that you establish your credibility with them by pointing out the things that you're disappointed about. Uh, that the bill doesn't have, right? And just say like, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, I, I wish that the $15 minimum wage were in here. I, you know, whatever it is, like just list those things out and say, that is disappointing to me. And then I would point out, you know who else I think that is probably disappointing to? Uh, President Joe Biden. Like, I think he's also disappointed about that. And I think the vast majority of the, of the Democratic members of the U.S. Senate and of the U.S. House are disappointed about that. We're all disappointed about that. But it doesn't mean that it's not really good legislation. And then I would also say, look, I get that you wanted more stuff in there. I wanted more stuff in there. The president wanted more stuff in there. But it doesn't change the fact that in this incredibly gridlocked, nothing can ever get done era of American politics that seems to have lasted two decades, the president just signed like the biggest piece of economic relief legislation since what, like LBJ? I, I can't think of something in the last two decades that's been as big as this you could argue at the time obamacare was as big as this i think but you know and then it got whittled down and then you'd have an argument about that now but like this is the biggest piece of legislation that is actually on behalf of people who are not rich maybe in in our lifetimes so yes there's stuff that should be in it but like let's not act like it's a failure my god 
Right, right. You know, it's funny. This is <laughs> Grace is going to edit this out. But when you were saying disappointed, I, I'm just chuckling. There's this random. So do you remember the show Hercules uh, that was on TV with Kevin Sorbo? It was like, oh, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's this outtake where he's reading a cue card and it says disappointed on it, but it's meant to be he's supposed to act disappointed while he reads it. And he just reads. He's like all into it. He goes disappointed. Disappointed. That's why I was chuckling. Well, it's it's, it's like (laughs) no, no, no. It's like when H it's like when HW got to the bottom of his speech at that one point and said like message i care and it was like that was actually like a stage direction (laughs) but message i care well i just got back yesterday from four months away and seeing my mom seeing my friends that's one and two on my list but number three was getting back to my helix mattress and I had the best night's sleep last night on my Midnight Lux mattress. It, my sleep was so good that I'm just like on fire today. I just have that energy, Jason. I had a, a similar experience in that I had a, a work trip to South Dakota, stayed in a hotel for two nights, and just did not get a good night's sleep because I was away from my mattress. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. You just go to helixsleep.com majority54. You take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. I took the Helix quiz. I was matched with the Midnight Lux, same as Ravi, because I too am a side sleeper who prefers a medium firm mattress. Easy. Plus, there's a 10-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com majority54. That's helixsleep.com majority54 for up to $200 off and two free pillows. So I got this text from Ravi this morning after his wonderful sleep back on his Helix mattress. He woke up in the morning. He went to the cupboard. And what did he do? He found Athletic Greens left that he didn't realize he had. And he instantly texted a picture of them to myself and to Grace. I mean, we're nowhere near Hanukkah, but it was almost like a Hanukkah miracle. Like, What a wonderful feeling that must be. When I take Athletic Greens, I just feel fundamentally different. This is what I love about Athletic Greens. They call it like nutritional insurance. And basically, it's just an all-in-one superfood powder that gives you all your essential vitamins and minerals and nutrients. And, you know, I take it first thing in the morning before I do anything else, and I feel amazing for the rest of the day. And right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system during these last few weeks of the winter. Uh, They're offering our audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you go to our link today and you'll basically never have to buy vitamin D ever again. And you could simply visit athleticgreens.com slash majority and join health experts, athletes, health conscious go-getters. That's our category right there. <laughs> visit athleticgreens.com slash majority and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. In this week in misinformation, earlier this month, uh, the House passed the For the People Act, which is something we've been talking about a lot on this podcast. It's HR1. It's a bill to expand voting rights and partisan gerrymandering of congressional elections and add new transparency requirements to shine light on the flood of dark money in our elections. Uh, The bill now heads to the Senate where its fate is almost 100 percent tied to the question of the filibuster and whether the Democrats are willing to to vote on this uh, with 50 votes. Uh, Republicans are threatened by this bill uh, because they have 253, this is the last count I had, uh, bills across the country and state legislatures to restrict voting rights. 
here's a quote from Dan Constant, who's the president of the Republican-aligned American Action Network. So he said, this bill is the opposite of good governance. It's a cynical attempt by the left to put their thumb on the scales of democracy and engineer our laws, our laws to help them win elections. They want to limit free speech, funnel public funds into their campaign accounts, seize from states the ability to run their own free and fair elections, and then spin it like it's really about protecting voting rights. Jason, you have dedicated a, a chunk of your life to, to protecting the right to vote. Uh, how should we handle these critiques? Well, I think the first thing is we can't take these critiques lightly. I mean, most of these critiques are silly, but yet they shouldn't be taken lightly because I think that they, over time, like any lie, you say it enough, it can work. I mean, look, some of this stuff, like Governor Abbott of Texas last week said that if this passes, that there's going to be Democrats um, bribing people to vote with cocaine. I think somebody else said this was like conceived in hell by the devil himself or some some shit like that. So they're just throwing everything they can at it because this is the ballgame for them. Like, And it's important for us to remember that while they're going to say over and over again that this is about providing an advantage to Democrats, that's not what it's about. This is about a fair voting system, like making everything fair and level so that the party that the more people want to vote for is the party that wins. Now, they characterize that as unfair for the same reason that white people often can't understand the concept of white privilege, that because including everybody can feel like exclusion of you and you've always had an advantage. Like So they're like, oh, wait, making it fair, that's not fair because we're used to an unfair system. So let's remember the context. And as a result, like for them, that's it's the whole ballgame because they think if it's fair, they're not going to win. So they're going to throw everything at it. So when they say things like in this quote where he says, funnel public funds into their campaign accounts, look, we know that's not what this is because the public financing part is obviously for people of both parties. But that's the kind of thing that could catch on, right? Like that makes sense to voters. Like that's the kind of thing that is a motive you could assign to a politician. Like, yeah, when I think about a politician in that stereotypical sense, is that somebody who I think might be guilty of trying to funnel tax dollars into their campaign account? Yeah, I would totally believe that politicians would try to do that. So we can't take these lightly. We've got to, even though public opinion is overwhelmingly on the side of this legislation, that's not permanent. And you got to hammer back at this stuff whenever you hear it. Yeah, I think the two things that are going to, I think, be the centerpiece of this debate when it gets to the Senate or now that's in the Senate, are the public matching funds and some of the, the disclosure issues. Uh, and so I, I want to save those, put those in the back end of the discussion, just educate our voters on the so many not controversial things that are in this bill that are critical. Money for election security, right? The, the party, the Republican Party, seems to be up in arms about election security. So this would provide additional funding for that, uh, including tightening the rules around if there's foreign interference in election, what are your like obligations to disclose that, which is something that all patriotic Americans should care about. And it also sets minimum federal standards for elections so that we don't have like this patchwork of different rules uh, and laws as, as it relates to congressional elections and presidential elections, Senate elections around the country. It restores voting rights for the 5 million plus uh, formerly incarcerated people around the country, which is really important. You know, this is, you know, if you take just three states, Alabama, Tennessee, and Mississippi, over 8% of the voters in those states are disenfranchised. We standardize so many things about our election process. We open up early vote and standardize the amount of time that, that a state must provide early vote, vote by mail, tightening up registration. I mean, I can keep going on creating nonpartisan redistricting processes. So we pick legislators, not the other way around. These are all things that 
people support overwhelmingly in this country. I actually think of all that list, the, the only one that they could actually grab onto the other side and try and make an issue of is restoring voting rights for the formerly incarcerated, right? Because that's a talking point that they love to use, right? Like, oh, you know, Democrats, they just want to make sure that, you know, criminals vote because that's their people or whatever, however they do it. I don't even know. It's usually just a dog whistle. But I think that this is something we shouldn't in any way shy away from because, like, here's my argument. One, like, if you go to prison for something and you come out, like, it's not like we're like, now you can't have Medicare when you get older or now you can't have Social Security. Like, so isn't it rather arbitrary that we're like, and now you can't vote? And second, like, I'm sorry, I thought that we actually pretend to care how people are treated when they're incarcerated, right? Like, if we care about that, if we think that treating incarcerated people in anything even remotely resembling a, a, a humane fashion is a priority, well, then how can we possibly justify not having people who have actually been incarcerated have a voice in the democracy? Like, you're never going to have humane treatment in prisons if people who have been in prison don't get to vote. Like, it's just never going to happen. Yeah, and obviously, you know, we've, we've both been involved in this cause. Like, I am at, at Second Chance Studios, and we're both uh, mutual friends with Desmond Mead, who runs the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition in Florida and has been working to, to enfranchise formerly incarcerated people in Florida and been fighting an uphill battle, but valiantly and successfully there. Do we want people to return to society or not? That's the question. Like, why do we hang this over people's heads for the rest of their lives. Like if we want people to be rehabilitated and re-enter society, we need to mean that. But that's not what this is about. This is about power. Like obviously like the people coming out of the system um, happen to be disproportionately black and brown and Republicans feel threatened by that. But I think that, you know, they're not going to say, they're actually not going to hang their hat on the, the, the actual substance of that. They're going to say they want prisoners to vote. They want Bernie Madoff to vote or whatever, you know, pick or whatever, like Bernie Madoff's too white probably for them to make that point. But it's like whoever like the scary sort of example they want to use is um, to, to blow dog whistles. And they're going to be like, they want that person to vote, which is actually not the policy that's being advocated for. But they're just they, they're going to twist it because they, they're not in any way beholden to the facts on the ground. But I don't think that's where this debate's going to really come down. What I think is is up for grabs right now, there are two provisions. One is the uh, public financing of elections, but more importantly, there's a provision in this bill that requires transparency uh, for outside groups that earn in and around elections. And this is actually where there's a really important substantive debate, where actually the ACLU, for example, came out against this provision of the bill. Because what the bill is trying to do is say there's outside money coming to elections that people don't have to disclose the donors of it. So it could be foreign nationals, it could be big corporations, and whatever. And voters have a right to know who those people are. And the way around it right now is you could do issue-oriented campaigns, right? So you could be like, I'm against the Uber referendum in California, but I'm not going to actually like use electioneering language. I'm going to speak about it in general terms. Or you can criticize a candidate for voting on a certain bill, but not say whether to vote for or against them in an election where it's obvious what you're trying to do. So you can kind of skirt our election laws on that. So the bill says disclose those donors $10,000 and above. Any donor $10,000 above, you disclose that. Now, the ACLU says this is a little tricky because there are groups that like, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, for example, there were all sorts of pressure to disclose donors and pressure those people, etc. So there is like an important debate around the importance of anonymity in public discourse. 
I actually think that this is not going to wind up in the final bill. Jurisprudence on this is pretty strong, and I, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to allow it to stand anyway because there's some cases that are pretty, I think, dispositive on this. I actually like this policy. I think disclosing donors is really important, but I don't think it's going to get through the bill just because I don't think Democrats are going to look at this and say it's worth fighting for because it's not going to stand constitutional muster. So I think as a result, it, it should be, if not in this bill, it should be in another. Like, yeah, I get it if people are worried that it's going to take the entire bill down from a constitutional perspective, but I agree with you in terms of disclosing donors. This is a good example of one of those things that is super controversial inside the Capitol building and not even remotely controversial outside of it, right? I mean, that tends to be what happens with campaign finance laws and, and ethics laws as they're debated. Like, you go down Main Street in any town, and you're like, hey, what do you think about this? And people are like, yeah, we don't do that? That's stupid. Why would we not do that? But then you go into, like, the Capitol, and people are like, ooh, yeah, this is a big debate. Not sure what I think about this one, because those are the only people that are truly affected by it. I think that that will be very controversial. And, and I just think the argument for it is real simple. It's that, like... Do we want people to run for office as telemarketers? Is that what we want running for office to be? Or do we want running for office to be where you go out and you make your case to voters? Like, that's the simple choice here. And frankly, it is worth the dollars. As taxpayer, it is 100% worth it to me because you are going to get so much better government out of it as a result. Like, it's worth paying for. Yeah, and we have a New York robust system of public financing, and we're we're heading towards a June primary. A lot of candidates have already tapped out the amount of money they can raise, and and they're they're on the pub public system, and so they're just spending the time meeting voters, talking to voters, etc. So small donors really reign supreme in this. Uh, so like you you really don't get a lot out of these big checks in New York. It's like not worth your time to do events like that because you don't get matching for most of them. So it creates a whole different dynamic in the election that's largely super, super positive. I mean, imagine an election system that incentivizes you to talk to regular people instead <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. type of people regular people never meet. Like, wow, what a what an ingenious way to do it. And that's obviously what the goal is here. Right. We already have restrictions based on money. Like, you can't give $100,000 to a federal candidate, like, straight up. There, there already is this precedent in this country that says that, all right, like you can't have like Jeff Bezos dropping a trillion dollars on election. We all agree with that. Like the right would be up in arms if, if that happened, right, to beat Josh Hawley or something. So we already have a system that allows for this. There's not this inherent right to be anonymous. Well, you have a right to anonymous speech. You don't have a right to anonymously spend enormous money on your speech because the that that's the problem, right, is that when you when, when they equate, as this Supreme Court seems inclined to do, when you equate money and speech, then what you're saying is rich people get more speech. And, and, and that's the problem. We're all supposed to have an equal free speech opportunity, which means Jeff Bezos is free to run out in his yard with a hood over his head and yell terrible things and run inside. And like, that's fine. I don't care. Like, good luck staying anonymous. But like, you, can, you have every right to attempt <laughs> yeah. it. But like, what, he's, what he shouldn't be free to do is then take that and spend a trillion dollars on TV ads and be like, no, 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 I have a right to have no one know it was me. No, because because his neighbor doesn't have a trillion, his neighbor may, but you know, if a mile down the road, they don't have a trillion dollars to do that. And that's that's the concept of free speech. Yeah, and it's even it's even easier for him than that. Like if he wants to, to do that about like his opinion about the Seattle Seahawks, he's allowed. The minute you start getting close to an election, yeah. we start to restrict it.
So with all that said, the one thing we haven't talked about yet is the filibuster, right? Because we've we've talked all about the arguments for and against HR1, but at the end of the day, this is really all one big argument about the filibuster. And our friend Stacey Abrams made a, a great point this week. She she came out and said, hey, what if we just, the same way we exempt, you know, tax bills in terms of reconciliation from the filibuster and, you know, things like that and budget items, wh- why don't we just exempt civil rights legislation from the filibuster? Which, Ravi, I think makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm for exempting everything from the filibuster, so I'm obviously <laughs> yeah. for this. But, you know, notably, Biden came out, didn't make that exact carve out, but said that you at least have to stand and deliver a filibuster in order to use it. Now, I don't know, like, Jason, do you know, you at least ran for Senate, so you may know something about this. Like, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that, like, once you have to sit, you can't, like, pass a baton to somebody else? Like, once you sit down the debate is over? Like, why does this matter? Everybody's treating this like a huge victory. And I'm not exactly sure what the implications of it are. No, I think you can't. I think I, I actually think it's not, it's not a real solution. Because I think that, you know, if you have enough senators who will stand up, you can just keep it going forever. And it grounds all of the business in the Senate to a halt. So you couldn't do anything, probably what the Republicans would want. I don't think it's ideal. Like they, they have the system in the Missouri Senate, and it actually works pretty well. But there's, there's two things going there. One, you know, the legislative session ends at a certain point. So you're up against a time limit regardless. And that that forces negotiation because everybody has stuff they want to see get done. And then the other thing is like, you know, there's 34 members of, of the Missouri Senate. So at some point, you're going to run out of people who are going to do that. And you get natural coalitions that build across party lines. But I don't I don't see that happening here. I actually think that Stacey's argument is, is exactly the right one. Uh, let's just move forward in a way that exempts uh, civil rights legislation from the filibuster, particularly given America's history, like that's our responsibility. Like we shouldn't allow anything to stop civil rights legislation. It reminds me of when I was in the still in the state house and we were debating a, a law that unfortunately still is not passed in Missouri, which was you know the law to, to make it where you can't fire somebody um, for being gay. And uh, a lobbyist from like a religious right organization was testifying before I think it was the Judiciary Committee, and I was a member. And it was on this bill and and his testimony against it, his strategy had changed because the culture had advanced to the point where he knew he couldn't just come out and just say a bunch of, you know, bigoted stuff. He had to like wrap it in something nice. And so he said, I recognize that this is a civil rights bill. uh, And I and I see this as civil rights, which was a big deal. He said, but I just don't think that we're ready for this change. And my question to him, which he could not answer was, please name for me an example in American history where we moved too quickly on civil rights. And obviously he could not. And and that, that I think gets to our point, which is that the point of the filibuster is to slow things down and to sometimes not do things and to give the minority power, not minorities, but the minority in the legislative body, and therefore to slow down progress. I mean, and sometimes for the best. But in American history, there's never been a time where we slowed down progress on civil rights and later went, whew, good thing we didn't move too quickly on that one. Like, that's never, ever happened. Right. And it, people should point to the history of the filibuster. I think the longest filibuster in the history of America, I think it might have been Strom Thurmond uh, mm-hmm. on, a, yeah. on a civil rights bill. Yeah, uh, desegregation. So, you know, this is this is a tool that has been used for great harm. And, you know, if we're sitting down with Joe Manchin trying to persuade him that's where we should start. You know, there, there, is, there is a racist history of the filibuster, and at the very least, we can do a carve out here. 
So Jason, I love wine, but I don't really know the difference between good and bad wine. When I taste something that's amazing, I want to have it again, but I often have this experience of forgetting where it was. What I really love about our sponsor, First Leaf, is that you can go online and you answer some questions about like what is it you like, and not just within the wine setting, but just other types of foods and flavors you like. And then they put together a customizable wine selection for you. They send it to you. And then you now have a record of everything you've had. And then you let them know, hey, I loved this one. I didn't like that one. So over time, not only do you get more and more wine that you really love, but you start to learn. You're You're like, oh, this is like an oaky vanilla taste or whatever. And then you can sound like you're sophisticated next time you're around really fancy people who know what they're talking about. I'm pumped about that as well because the real story is this is a crazy good deal. First Leaf works directly with world-class winemakers, saving you up to 60% off retail on award-winning wine. You discover new wine like a VIP by becoming a First Leaf member. Join today and you'll get, here it is, six bottles of wine for $29.95 and free shipping. Just go to tryfirstleaf.com slash majority54. That's six bottles of wine for $29.95 and free shipping at tryfirstleaf.com slash majority54. I mean, it's a crazy deal. So Ravi, for Quarantine Corner, I mean, at some point here soon, I'm not sure that it's going to make sense to call this Quarantine Corner. At least I hope not. So I, I, I guess I would just say, I would invite people to tweet at us and to give us suggestions for what they think this little section where we talk about stuff that's not politics, what we ought to call it. Yeah, I really look forward to the day when we could change this name, and I think our listeners will have some some fun suggestions for us. Yeah, I believe we had initially, back in July, I think we had a midlife crisis uh, segment or something, but I don't really want to use that because I'm about to turn 40, and that's just depressing. It's getting too really real. It's, it's not a joke anymore. <laughs> it's getting it's too getting real. real. That's right. All right. Well, uh, Quarantine Corner, Ravi, I assume this is a good time for us to talk about you're back in New York. Back in New York. I, I don't think I've ever told this story on the podcast, but when the quarantine first happened, I went down to Tennessee, which is where I used to live, and I spent the first few months of the lockdown there. And then over the summer, I drove a rental car back to New York City, and I was so excited to be back in New York that within like three minutes of being in my neighborhood, just trying to park my car, I hit another, it was a parked car, so everybody was safe, but I hit a car. I was just so excited. I had lost like all control and focus. Everything was okay. Cars got fixed and everything, but that's just the feeling of coming back to your home. You know, I just got this feeling of, of just pure joy. And um, I was telling you this offline, but uh, when I was in the air and I touched down, I opened on my phone to news that there was a massive donation to this nonprofit that I helped start called Second Chance Studios, game-changing donation that's going to allow us to do our work, which is helping formerly incarcerated people enter the workforce. And I was just, I mean, I'm pumped. As you could tell by listening to this podcast, I'm, I just have a little pep in my step right now, Jason. Well, it's funny because when you landed in Costa Rica a few months ago, you, what, on the way on the way down or whatever, you opened your phone and found that Biden had been declared the victor. Oh, the yeah, that's right. On the plane. Yeah, on the plane. I was looking at, uh, I went to go uh, just mess around on the internet on the plane and everybody was asleep around me when I found out that Biden had officially won. So I should fly more often. But I, I won't. So. Don't worry about it. Don't send me messages. <laughs> I won't be flying a lot. But um, when it's safe, I'll fly again just so we can have a good luck charm. The next time the Bills are playing the Chiefs, I'll, I'll fly, Jason. Deal. I was reading the New York Times the other day, Jason, and I, I read this really awesome story about groups around the country that are pressuring corporations to stop funding candidates who support voter suppression. Um, like an example would be like in Georgia, 
uh, pressuring Coca-Cola, for example, to stop supporting candidates who support uh, voter suppression, and then to, to affirmatively denounce it, right? Uh, and there was, a, there was a group that you're intimately familiar with that you helped start uh, called Let America Vote, which is now, I think, combined with End Citizens United. And I thought it would be really good if, if people want, like we talk so much about HR1 in this podcast, the For the People Act, if people want to fund the good work and, and fighting the good fight on voting rights in states around the country, I think and Citizens United Let America Vote would be a good place to, to go and donate some money. Yeah, so it's a perfect grab and or because, look, I think the entire mission of Let America Vote in the first place was to create political consequences for voter suppression. And, you know, when you don't have an election coming up, one of the best ways to create a political consequence is for Republicans to find that a source of their, of their funding, corporate dollars, uh, is harder to get because there's pressure on corporations to be a good corporate citizen and not to support voter suppression. So I, I think going to letamericavote.org or incitizensunited.org and, uh, and supporting that effort is a great way to grab an oar. Thank you to Johanna, who left us a great voicemail that we used on this episode. If you want to leave us a voicemail that we can respond to in a future episode, you can do that at 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. You really should go to Ravi's Instagram because there is this video. It's like, I can't even believe that you have this. This is one of the coolest things a person can have. It's a drone video of Ravi surfing. And it's at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. It's just so cool. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Cantor. So, and that's it. And it, this only says it if you mention a candidate by name. By the way, this is like so tailored. Like, it, like I, Grace is going. Grace on. is here. <laughs> we gotta wrap this up. <laughs> I don't know if you snorted Athletic Greens before we got on air. But like, are, I think you should keep this entire part in, including the part where you stopped us. We are, we are deep, which is great. This is wonderful, but I just want to land the plane. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.